This podcast discusses cases in which a crime may have occurred. It's important to advise that all parties mentioned or generally referred to in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty by law. Opinions and viewpoints expressed on this podcast don't necessarily reflect those of the podcast host, Murderish, or Cloud10. It was mid-December 2017 in Southern California. The sun was out, of course, and even though it was almost winter, the temperature was in the mid-70s. A high-powered meeting was taking place at a lawyer's office in Century City, one of the swankiest of all the well-to-do West Los Angeles City districts. Century City has a rich history tied to the entertainment business. It was once the back lot of the 20th Century Fox Studios. Today, the city is a mix of extravagant homes, luxury apartments, and businesses that cater to the rich and famous. It's not out of the ordinary to spot a celebrity grabbing coffee or leaving a business meeting in the posh city. On this day in 2017, in the high-rise office of her high-profile entertainment lawyer, fittingly located on Avenue of the Stars, the heiress to the fortune of aerospace giant McDonnell Douglas, which was acquired by Boeing in 1997, sat before representatives from a prominent Southern California business bank. The wealthy heiress was looking to secure a multi-million dollar loan. Her lawyer, who happened to be a client of the bank, had referred her there and used his connections within the bank to make the meeting happen. The heiress was set to receive her share of the McDonald family fortune within the next year or so, a sizable disbursement of $80 million. As collateral for the loan, she was willing to grant the bank a security interest in the family trust investment account, which had a balance of over $28 million, as verified by notarized account documents. If she defaulted on the loan, the bank could liquidate the trust account and be made whole which was a really nice fallback plan. As further proof of her creditworthiness, the heiress offered the fact that she owned a Los Angeles-based television production company that had a library of shows worth an additional $80 million. She admitted that yes, there were some ongoing financial issues with the company, but said that she'd been the victim of bank fraud and the issues were in the process of being ironed out. After the meeting, Bank representatives considered all of the information, pre-screened the loan request, and ultimately saw an opportunity to bring on a very lucrative client. The heiress was poised to bring millions of dollars in deposits to the bank, something they needed in order to increase profits. Banks rely heavily on deposits to make loans to people and businesses, and loans are very profitable for banks. Ultimately, the bank approved the $15 million loan for the 66-year-old heiress, with much of the paperwork and communication funneled through her experienced lawyer. But the bank would never see the deposits they so desperately wanted. Several weeks later, after receiving formal credit approval, the heiress drew down nearly all of the $15 million loan, failed to make the first scheduled loan payment, and her high-profile lawyer, the one who had referred her to the bank, would wind up dead under bizarre circumstances, and the bank soon discovered there was no McDonald family trust account. 
There was no $28 million security blanket. It was all a lie. And the bank had no fallback plan for repayment of the multi-million dollar loan. They'd never see a penny of the loan repaid. And in fact, they'd never see the heiress again. She took the money and disappeared without ever looking back. Oh, and the heiress bit? That was a lie too. The woman was Mary Carol McDonnell, a television executive who at some point in her career made a hard left into financial misconduct. And this was hardly her first foray into the world of hustling. But how did Mary Carol get to this point when she seemingly had a successful production company and respect in the industry? How was she able to deceive so many people? How the hell did she apparently scam a sophisticated bank out of nearly $15 million? And her famous lawyer, what role, if any, did he play in the alleged con? Was his sudden and unexpected death just a coincidence? Or did he know too much? And where is Mary Carol McDonald today and the millions of dollars she got her hands on? From Murderish and Cloud 10, this is Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime, a podcast that dives into one story told over several weekly episodes. In season one, I'm taking you along as I look into a woman who seemed to have it all. Money, a successful true crime TV production company, expensive homes and cars, she truly seemed to be living her best life. At the time I became aware of Mary Carol McDonnell, I was about 18 years into my career, which had mostly been spent doing commercial real estate financing for business owners. It was 2017, and I was working at Bank of California, that's bank spelled with a C, a commercial bank with several offices in Southern California. I worked on the 20-something floor of a high-rise building in the bank's downtown Los Angeles office. I was part of a really tight-knit lending team who'd all essentially come over to Bank of California as a package deal. My team and I often joked that if shit hit the fan at this bank, we'd all leave the same way we came in, as a team. My team and I would have lunch and grab afternoon coffee together often, and we were all friends outside of work, still are today. So when shit actually did hit the fan at work in 2018, it rocked our tight-knit team. And the drama that unfolded was not at all what any of us would have ever expected. Mary Carol McDonnell, the phony heiress, who's at the center of this story, well, she's the reason that everything changed because she got her hands on almost $15 million and then disappeared with it. And the reason it had such a profound effect on my commercial lending group specifically was because three people from our team were responsible for bringing Mary Carroll into the bank as a client. After she seemingly fled with the money, 
an internal investigation ensued. Three people from our lending team were put on leave and we were ordered not to have any contact with them. It was a really big deal and the environment at the office was tense to say the least. Bank of California is a publicly traded bank, so this story was reported on and word got around quickly. The FBI were eventually called in, which of course elevated the situation, and ultimately, our tight-knit team was dismantled. I left the bank shortly after everything blew up, and I never looked back. That marked the end of my corporate career, fortunately by my own choice. This phony heiress, Mary Carol McDonnell, had a significant impact on my life, and as strange as it may sound, her alleged multi-million dollar scam actually changed my life for the better. Unfortunately, I know this isn't the case for many other people who were impacted by her actions. Some people have suffered significant financial losses and other people lost their jobs and had to endure the stress of being questioned by the FBI as to whether they were in on her scam. Leaving my corporate career for good, being able to work with my husband in our family business and produce podcasts full time has been a huge blessing for me, as cheesy as it sounds. When the pandemic hit, I was able to help my young daughter with remote schooling every day. I'm not sure how my husband and I would have navigated through that had I still been working at the bank and commuting. Mary Carol, whether she knows it or not, altered the trajectory of my life over the last four years and I haven't been able to shake this story since it all went down. I've wondered where is Mary Carol? What did she do with the money? And mostly, why hasn't she been apprehended yet? Recently, I decided to dig into this story and document my findings on season one of this podcast. So here we are. I'll attempt to unravel this crazy story and hopefully satisfy my own curiosity and of course, I invite you guys to come along with me. I think a good place to start is to find out just who Mary Carol McDonald is. And if she isn't an heiress, who the hell is she? This is episode one, The Heiress. Mary Carol McDonald was born in St. Louis, Missouri on December 28, 1951 to Russell G. McDonald and Eva Muse. Her father, who was born in Missouri in 1914, was in no way related to James S. McDonnell, the true founder of McDonnell Aircraft. That guy was born in Colorado in 1899, 15 years before Mary Carroll's father was born. Mary Carroll's parents had a total of six kids, Mary Carroll being the fifth in line. She had three older brothers, Arthur, Richard, and Kenneth an older sister, Diane, and a younger sister, Marilyn, who went by Holly. Holly, the baby of the family, was born with Down syndrome three years after Mary Carol, their birthdays only six days apart. Holly and Mary Carol had a deep bond and were more than sisters, they were best friends. Russell and Eva were Christian scientists and they worked hard to build a really nice life for their close-knit family in Kirkwood, Missouri a suburb of St. Louis. Russell owned and operated a small mom-and-pop market called McDonald's Market, a favorite among locals. 
the market was pioneered as one of the first stores with a salad bar and video rentals, and it stayed in business for over 50 years. Russell was also involved with the growth of the Independent Grocers Alliance, which allowed small family-owned local markets to come together under a larger national brand. IGA stores are actually still in existence today. Their slogan, Hometown Proud Supermarkets, embodied Russell's work ethic and focus. He worked really long hours, which kept him away from home a majority of the time. As a child, Mary Carroll was active in the Girl Scouts and belonged to Brownie Troop 1371 out of Kaiser Elementary School. Her mother hosted a lot of troop gatherings at the family home on Doherty Ferry Road, including hikes and treasure hunts. Mary Carroll also played the piano and liked to sing, carrying that passion into high school, where she sang in the chorus at Principia School in St. Louis. She was active in the pep club, French club, student council, and chapel committee. And Mary Carroll wasn't the only one in the family who loved music. Most of the McDonald household sang or played an instrument of some kind, and music was hugely important to their family legacy. So much so that if it weren't for the fact that Russell had spent some time in his 20s teaching the accordion, he and Eva might have never met. Eva just happened to go to Russell for accordion lessons and by 1938, the two were married. Mary Carroll's brother, Richard, played the saxophone, started a band called the Rich McDonald Quartet, and went on to run a successful record label called Max Jazz. Her brother, Kenneth, sang in a cappella groups and was the president of the male choir in high school. Mary Carroll's sister, Diane, sang and played the piano. Diane's children, Melanie and Paul, also played the piano and Melanie went on to become a world-class pianist, touring the globe with several prestigious organizations. It's no wonder that the McDonald family gatherings throughout the years were effervescent, all-day affairs filled with the sounds of singing and music. In 1966, when Mary Carroll was only 14 years old, an unthinkable tragedy struck the McDonald family. On the afternoon of March 15th, Mary Carroll's little sister, Holly, was playing in the family's backyard with one of her neighbor friends, a 14-year-old boy who went to a special needs school, just like Holly. It's unknown exactly what happened, but the boy somehow stabbed Holly in the back with a hunting knife. The knife went through her chest and pierced her heart. She began to bleed out almost immediately. Kenneth, who was 20 at the time, arrived home to find his little sister injured and the neighbor boy standing over her. Kenneth rushed Holly to St. Joseph's Hospital, which was only three minutes away, but it was too late. 11-year-old Holly was pronounced dead on arrival. According to a source close to the family, Holly's death had a profound and lasting effect on Mary Carroll, the depths of which can never be measured. Perhaps this single life-altering event was the root cause for the lies that she would spin about her family's history and her own self-worth, 
the one horrific memory she would always try to erase from existence. Though it's not known exactly when Mary Carroll first started telling people that she was related to the famous McDonald family, it could very well have started shortly after she lost her sister and best friend. After high school, Mary Carroll attended Principia College in Elsa, Illinois, beginning in 1971. The Principia campus is located along the Mississippi River across from St. Louis. It's a small liberal arts college rooted in the principles of Christian science. At the time, the college only accepted students from Christian science families, though that has since changed. All but one of Mary Carroll's siblings also went to Principia, making it somewhat of a family tradition. Diane graduated in 1965, became a teacher, and eventually one of the first people in Missouri to homeschool their children. Richard was active with the Principia radio station for two years, then went on to the University of Missouri, where he received an MBA. He worked in investment banking for decades prior to starting his record label. Kenneth is the only sibling who didn't attend Principia. He's been a funeral director in Missouri since at least 1988. Arthur graduated in 1964, took over the family grocery store in 1982, and eventually he became the mayor of Kirkwood in 2008. It's interesting to note that the circumstances surrounding Arthur's bid for mayor involve one of the most gruesome homicides in Missouri history, let alone for the small town of Kirkwood. On February 7, 2008, Shortly after a public city council meeting had begun inside Kirkwood City Hall, a man entered the council chambers armed with two handguns and started shooting. Before entering the council chambers, the gunman had already killed a Kirkwood police officer across the street and taken the officer's gun. The shooter, who was later identified as Charles Lee Cookie Thornton, had a long history of disagreements with the city council many concerning racial bias, which resulted in legal battles and financial hardship. Thornton had mortgaged his home in order to pay for the legal bills, only to lose every single suit he filed. Many people believe Thornton was taking matters into his own hands after feeling unheard by the city council. Police officers who responded to the chaotic scene shot and killed Thornton, but not before he killed six people including another police officer, the director of public works, the current mayor, and two city council members. Mary Carroll's brother, Arthur, who was a council member at the time, avoided injury by hiding under a desk as the shots rang out. One of the council members who was killed happened to be the only person running against Arthur for mayor. After her death, he ran unopposed and was named mayor of Kirkwood a few months later. Arthur was well-liked and remained mayor until 2016. Shortly after his time in office ended, Arthur was named Grand Marshal of the 2016 Green Tree Parade by the Kirkwood Green Tree Festival Committee. Mary Carroll's parents and siblings enjoyed success in various ways and maybe that was a motivator for her to achieve the same under any circumstances. 
Right after this short ad break, we're going to get into Mary Carol's college life and how it got off to a bit of a rocky start because she mismanaged money. Imagine that. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Mary Carol McDonald, if you're listening right now, please do not hit the forward 15 seconds button because you may find yourself interested in what BetterHelp has to offer. To be fair, I'd venture to say we can all benefit from BetterHelp, some more than others, but I'm not naming any names. But I will give you a little teensy-weensy hint. The name rhymes with Perry Farrell McFonnell. BetterHelp isn't just any old therapy service. It's online therapy that caters to you. If you're stressed, anxious, or wanting to vent about all the annoying one-upper moms at your eight-year-old daughter's gymnastics practice on Thursday afternoons at four, BetterHelp can match you, or me, with a licensed therapist in under 48 hours. I've become a professional at never leaving the house because I can order just about anything I need and have it delivered. When I found out that BetterHelp does this with therapy, I thought, wow, I may never have to button another pair of jeans again. Hashtag yoga pants are pants. You can meet with your BetterHelp therapist in video sessions or just shoot them a text to vent the next time your husband shaves his beard and leaves the beard hairs all over the bathroom vanity like a twisted little gift you never asked for. In fact, hold on, I need to text my therapist right now. Dear therapist, his beard hairs are everywhere and I'm about to gather them all up and put them in his coffee tomorrow morning. What should I do? You'll save money with BetterHelp and avoid sitting in a boring waiting room. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dirty Money, that's Better H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Special offer for Dirty Money Moves listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Dirty Money. According to a source who knew Mary Carroll before she started her first semester at the Principia campus, Mary Carroll's father had given her some money to cover tuition, room and board, books, and other supplies. But Mary Carroll spent all of it before school began on nothing in particular. Out of money and with classes quickly approaching, Mary Carroll knew exactly what she needed to do. She put on a show of tears, told her father she'd run out of money, and apologized profusely. Russell was no match for his daughter's tears. He handed over the money she needed for school. This behavior of overspending would become a regular habit for Mary Carroll, along with continuing to lie about her family's background and her own stature in life. During her four years at Principia, Mary Carroll was active on campus just like she'd been in high school. She helped out in the admissions office and sang in a choir group called the Madrigals. She dated a fellow student for most of her college career, a young man from Dallas, Texas, named Shapley Mather. Most people called him Hap. Shortly after they both graduated in 1974, Mary Carroll and Hap got married. Not long after their wedding, Mary Carroll's father paid for her to attend the Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School in Rhode Island. He wanted her to learn a skill that would allow her to make money and stay consistently employed. The school was considered to be the best of its kind. 
students at the Gibbs School were held to a much higher standard than its competitors. The school taught discipline and how to deliver quality work that was unmatched. With mottos like stand above the crowd and excellence in all you do, a Gibbs girl was the gold standard in the industry. Because of its reputation, the school received countless requests for graduates to interview for positions at various high-powered companies. But the interviews were for graduates only. Mary Carroll happened to see a request from a TV station executive needing a secretary while she was still a student. Although it was against the rules, she went to the interview anyway. And she made quite the impression Blake Byrne, the station manager for WJAR-TV in Providence, had been working successfully in television for over a decade. He saw something special in Mary Carroll during the interview, so he agreed to hire her once she graduated from the Gibbs program. True to his word, Blake took Mary Carroll under his wing after she graduated and became her mentor in the business for many years. Mary Carroll followed Blake to Texas when he was hired as the president and general manager for NBC's KXAS-TV in Dallas-Fort Worth and continued to soak up whatever knowledge she could. Blake went on to have a successful career spanning 35 years. After retiring from the TV business, Blake became one of the world's leading art collectors and made several notable art donations to museums. He founded the Skylark Foundation, which was a philanthropic family enterprise that funded art, education, environmental protection, services for women, the elderly, and gay and lesbian youth. Though they don't deny that Blake was a good man, one source does credit him with teaching Mary Carroll some negative habits and some bad business strategies, such as using any means necessary to take advantage of a situation and some less-than-honest techniques, like check-kiting. Check-kiting is a form of bank fraud where a check is deliberately issued from an account that doesn't have sufficient funds, and then deposited into a second account at another institution. The deposited money is then withdrawn before the check clears the first account, and either deposited back into the original account to cover the check, or taken as cash. A sophisticated check-kiting scheme could result in million-dollar gains as long as the people involved know how to stay one step ahead of the funds clearing the various accounts. Regardless of where or how she may have learned these techniques, that kind of activity could explain much of Mary Carroll's own business practices in the future, as well as behaviors in her personal life. By 1980, Mary Carroll ventured out on her own, taking a job back in St. Louis as a producer for KDNL-TV, an ABC affiliate. Next, she became the director of public affairs for Fox affiliate KPLR-TV. And then in 1982, she accepted the position of director of programming at Preview Subscription Television. Mary Carroll was doing really well, seemingly moving up the ranks. One source believes that though she was gaining some respect in the TV world, the constant moving around was less about getting promotions and more about Mary Carroll having to leave each location 
before any of her alleged shenanigans caught up with her, referring to her lies and possible financial issues. Though she appeared to be doing well professionally, Mary Carroll's personal life was not on a similar trajectory. On September 15, 1983, after nine years of marriage, Hap and Mary Carroll divorced. Hap stayed in St. Louis and eventually became the president of a company called Computer Consultants and Service Center, Inc. Mary Carroll continued working for Preview Subscription Television. Russell and Eva McDonnell had reportedly never trusted Mary Carroll's mentor, Blake Byrne, and didn't approve of the lifestyle associated with the TV business. The exact reason for her departure is unclear, but Mary Carroll did step away from TV in 1984. At that time, her father bought a dress shop in St. Louis for her to own and operate. It seems to be a running theme in Mary Carroll's life. Her father came to her rescue financially more than once and invested a great deal of money in order to secure a solid career for his daughter. The dress shop he bought for her was in the Clayton Road Strip Mall, a popular area of shops considered to be fashionable and stylish. The dress shop was called The Fitting Room, and it specialized in custom dressmaking and alterations. But after only a year, Mary Carroll's financial antics caught up with her. According to a source, Mary Carroll allegedly committed upwards of $100,000 in credit card fraud, and the fitting room was soon closed. The source said that several years later, the alleged fraud still had the FBI asking questions about the incident. In 1985, apparently off the hook for any alleged crime, Mary Carroll threw herself back into the world of television and moved to Colorado, where she had been hired as program director for Denver's CBS affiliate, KMGH-TV. A source said that Mary Carroll had to return to St. Louis sometime later to appear in court regarding the alleged credit card fraud. According to the source, Russell McDonald may have paid any fines or fees associated with the incident so Mary Carroll could return to Colorado and move on with her life. After starting to make some decent money as the program director in Denver, Mary Carroll got an expensive downtown condo and a Porsche. She was seemingly trying to push herself further and further away from the realities of her small town life, spending lavishly and taking an air of superiority to those around her. Mary Carroll's lie about being related to the McDonnell Douglas family must have played right into her evolving image because no one had any reason to doubt her. She had expensive things, the attitude, and the last name to back up her story. Around this time, she started dating Thomas Carroll, who went by Tom. Oddly, this would have made Mary Carroll's legal name at that time, Mary Carroll Carroll. Tom had actually attended Principia College at the same time as Mary Carroll and her first husband, Hap, but he graduated a year after them in 1975. Mary Carol and Tom were married on November 9th of 1986. Two years later, on October 9th, 1988, Mary Carol gave birth to twin sons, Mackenzie and Sean. According to a source close to the family, the boys were essentially raised by a nanny for the first 10 years of their lives because Mary Carol's attention was focused elsewhere. 
The source went on to say that the primary reason the twins had a solid foundation growing up was because of the time they spent with the nanny and with their father. The nanny seemingly played a critical motherly role in the boys' lives. Coming up after a quick ad break, Mary Carol's mentor re-enters the picture. Her second marriage ends, but her spending continues. In 1993, Mary Carol's old mentor came back into the picture. Blake Byrne had started a company based in San Antonio, Texas, called Argyle Television. The company had TV stations in San Antonio, Dallas, St. Louis, Alabama, and Los Angeles. Mary Carroll was offered a position as program director in the L.A. offices, and it was a financial opportunity that her family could not pass up. In 1994, the Carroll family packed up their lives and moved to Los Angeles. They rented a multi-million dollar home off of Flicker Place, just a quick walk from Blake's house on Skylark Lane, in the Hollywood Hills neighborhood known as the Bird Streets. Celebrities Leonardo DiCaprio, Keanu Reeves, and Jodie Foster have called the Bird Streets home. The Argyle Television offices were located on the infamous Sunset Strip, less than a mile from the Carroll's lavish home. Argyle performed well and soon proved to be highly profitable. Mary Carroll eventually became the VP of Programming and Marketing, and she reaped the benefits of the company's success. But as she had done in the past, Mary Carroll reportedly lived beyond her means, spending money she didn't have. According to a source close to the family, she often made purchases that were kept secret from her husband. And before long, their finances were in complete disarray, and their relationship was marred by distrust. Apparently, Mary Carroll became quite adept at making up stories on the spot to suit the situation. But it proved much more difficult for her to keep those stories straight. The source went on to say that Mary Carroll told so many lies that it got to the point where nothing she said could be trusted. She continued to claim that she was related to the famous McDonald family, even after being confronted with proof of her lie. In June of 1995, their marriage was on shaky ground and she and Tom agreed to temporarily separate. Tom moved into an apartment, but Mary Carroll immediately bought a million-dollar home in Bel Air right off of L.A.'s famous Mulholland Drive. The details of the real estate purchase list Mary Carroll as being an unmarried woman, even though she was still very much married. This means that she signed documents she knew to be inaccurate, something she would continue to do over and over in the future. Mary Carroll filed for divorce from Tom on July 21st, and once it was finalized, she was granted custody of the two boys. By 1997, Argyle Television merged with the Hearst Company, forming Hearst Argyle Television. It doesn't appear that Mary Carroll kept her position after the merger, and it seems she was out of work for about a year or two between 1997 and 1999. She ended up selling the Bel Air home in 1998 for $1.4 million, choosing instead to rent a $700,000 home in Calabasas a Los Angeles County city that's become synonymous with the Kardashians. 
During the time she was unemployed, Mary Carroll hired a teacher to homeschool her boys. According to a source who knew the teacher, she was supposedly made to sign an NDA regarding anything that happened inside of Mary Carroll's home. The NDA might have been required due to the often confidential nature of the TV business, or it could have been a tool to hide Mary Carroll's alleged fraudulent activities. The true reason for the NDA is unclear, but it is interesting to note that Mary Carroll was involved with the startup of two businesses during the time she was unemployed. Both startups were ventures with people associated with Argyle Television, the company founded by Mary Carroll's mentor, Blake Byrne, and both startups used Argyle's business address as their primary address. Records show that the first company was called Triumph Communications, a media production, consulting and technology marketing company. The managing members were Mary Carol McDonnell and Karen Horsmanoff. The second business was called The Watney Report, a publishing company. Managing members for that company were Mary Carol McDonnell, Karen Horsmanoff, and Blake Byrne. It's believed by some people that Mary Carroll continued to land jobs in part because of the weight of Blake's recommendations. He had a tremendous reputation and his opinions mattered to people in the industry. In any case, it seems that Blake did stay involved with Mary Carroll's career in one form or another. Triumph Communications and the Watney Report, however, apparently ran into some money issues. Both companies are currently listed as suspended by the Franchise Tax Board. In 1999, Mary Carroll re-entered the world of TV executives and took a position at Raycom Media as Executive VP of Programming. She oversaw all programming, including acquisitions, scheduling, and budgeting for the company. Raycom, an employee-owned company with billions of dollars in revenue, was headquartered in Montgomery, Alabama. Mary Carroll picked up and moved again, taking the children with her. She bought a home on Long Needle Drive in Montgomery for approximately $520,000. The house overlooked a lake and a golf course and had a large main staircase complete with zebra print carpet. Two years later, in June of 2001, she and the kids moved back to the Los Angeles area where she bought a $650,000 home in Toluca Lake. Toluca Lake is another area of Los Angeles that glamorous old Hollywood stars like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra called home and where more recent stars like Viola Davis and Melissa McCarthy have lived. Only a month after buying the Toluca Lake home, Mary Carroll took out a home equity line of credit in the amount of $196,000, increasing the total mortgage on the house to $846,000. She also still owned the home in Alabama with a mortgage of just over $520,000. A year later, in July of 2002, Mary Carroll bought yet another house, this time on Sugarloaf Drive in La Cañada a neighborhood north of Burbank in the foothills of the Verdugo Mountains. I've worked in La Cañada previously, and it's extremely posh in certain areas. Some of the city's private middle and high schools come with a tuition price tag that would make most people's jaw drop. 
La Cunada has been home to Vince Vaughn, Kevin Costner, and Angela Bassett. You get the picture. The purchase price of Mary Carroll's La Cunada home was nearly $1.6 million. Clearly, she had expensive taste, and she was racking up the debt to prove it. By 2002, Mary Carroll owned three homes with combined mortgages of just under $3 million. In August of 2002, a year after buying it, Mary Carroll sold the Toluca Lake house for roughly a $250,000 profit. But even with that profit, records show that three months later, another mortgage was taken out on the Sugarloaf property for $100,000. But the money didn't come from a traditional mortgage lender. It was a private party lender, which meant the money came from a friend, a family member, or possibly a business. According to documents prepared by Mary Carroll, she also owned 50% of a Los Angeles condo with her nephew, Boyd McDonald, which was purchased in 2003. The mortgages on that property totaled over $900,000, and she was responsible for half of that amount. By December of 2006, the mortgage on the Sugarloaf home had increased to over $3 million, and the mortgage on the Longneedle home had increased to nearly $600,000. Records for the Sugarloaf property are convoluted, listing more than a dozen transactions, many of which happen only weeks or months apart. The various transactions appear to include refinances, second and possibly third mortgages, and lines of credit. Although the records don't give an indication as to why, they do show that Mary Carroll was moving around a lot of money, adjusting loans, using credit, cashing out equity, and incurring more and more debt. While she was working for Raycom, Mary Carroll had significant professional success. She was highly respected at the company, and her name became widely known in the industry. In 2005, she carried that success into her own TV production company called Long Needle Entertainment, which had some popular children's programming. In January of 2012, Mary Carroll started Bellum Entertainment. With offices located in Burbank, California, Bellum was set to be her flagship company. Bellum became the parent company for Longneedle, as well as several other ventures. Bellum produced some well-known true crime shows such as Deep Undercover, Bizarre Murders, It Takes a Killer, Corrupt Crimes, and Crime Files, The Homefront. Bellum Entertainment's content was successful enough that Mary Carroll decided to leave her position as VP of Programming with Raycom Media in 2014 to stay solely focused on Bellum's projects. And by that time, she'd won two Emmys as a producer and was considered a top-level industry veteran. Mary Carroll's departure from Raycom made headlines throughout the TV industry. In an August 13, 2014 article from TVNewsCheck.com, Raycom president and CEO Paul McTeer said, Mary Carroll is a tremendous executive who will be missed at Raycom. We hope to continue to work with her on projects in the years to come, and we wish her all the best at Bellum. All the best. It's a statement full of so much hope for a bright future. I imagine that everyone expected Mary Carroll's trajectory in the TV biz to continue upward and her future with Bellum to be very bright. But that would not be the case.
Next time on Dirty Money Moves Women in White Collar Crime, Mary Carol McDonald's name makes the local news. One entertainment company is accused of not paying its workers. It has not been a good month to be the owner of Bellum Entertainment. A group of her former employees are going public, saying she owes them thousands. And an arbitrator also ruled she owes an investor more than $3 million. Every request for a check or where is the check was met with tomorrow, Friday, Monday, soon. This isn't the first time Bellum's owner, Mary Carol McDonald, has been accused of not paying up. The Labor Commissioner's Office in Van Nuys has received 50 wage complaints against Bellum since October of last year. Dirty Money Moves is a collaboration between Murderish and Cloud 10 Media. Executive producers are myself, Jamie Rice, and Sim Sarna. Research and writing is done by Gina Mazzolini. Matt Provenzano does the audio mixing and editing. Courtney Blomquist produces the podcast. Josh Cook composed the music. And Brian Stefanik created the podcast cover art. Follow us at Dirty Money Moves on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And if you like the show, please rate us, review us, and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. If you're into true crime content, check out my other podcast, Murderish. Thanks for listening and see you next week for a brand new episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.